Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. This summer, over the course of the next few weeks, I am taking some time off to recharge and to really think about how to give you even more value with these conversations and with the content here at She Said, She Said podcast. One of the things I'm doing as part of my recharge is going back and reviewing past episodes to see what you liked and then pulling a few nuggets and themes that I think are especially important to emphasize as we think about the topic of influence in our lives and careers. Now, in doing that, I'm also gonna repackage and re-release a few of our past episodes, especially some of the ones that got huge downloads and that really resonated with so many listeners. The episode that follows today contains excerpts from my conversation with tech entrepreneur and author Sukinder Singh Cassidy. Sukinder and I sat down in June of 2021, just last year, to talk about her terrific book. It's called Choose Possibility, Take Risks, and Thrive Even When You Fail. It's a terrific book and I highly recommend it. It's a great one to add to your summer reading list as you look for ways to invest in yourself. In this episode, you'll hear Sukinder's advice not only on how to think about smart risk-taking, but also how she tackles this idea of the myth of a single choice. We also talk about the connection between risk-taking and confidence, and I think you'll absolutely love what she has to say on the topic. She also gives really specific advice for visualization and not just visualizing your success or a successful outcome, but maybe even more importantly, thinking in detail and really visualizing your failure in the form of what you'll do if and when you fail or when you fall short of your original goal. I love this part of the conversation. And I find the idea of putting so much emphasis on a backup plan to be very empowering, but I'd love to know what you think once you have a chance to listen. Now, while Sukinder and I don't specifically talk about influence per se in this conversation, as I've had a chance to reflect on it a bit, I actually see a direct connection between taking charge of a series of outcomes and also focusing on what we can learn from each iteration of tackling a challenge. 
failure is, after all, the very best teacher. But the way Sukinder thinks about this is really less about failure and more about growth. I love that. And that it's a key dimension of building and sustaining your influence. Now, friend, just one more housekeeping tip before we jump in. I've shortened this episode a bit from the original episode, which was posted as episode 159. If you're interested, you'll find that full episode on my website at She Said, She Said Podcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to take note of the show notes for the episode, which you'll also find on the website. Again, she said, she said podcast.com. And I've also included a full transcript, links to Sukender's bio and her book. And again, if you're looking for some great summer reading materials, uh, be sure to check out Sukender's book. It's called Choose Possibility. It's a good one, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Like this podcast, it's a great way to invest in you. For now, here is my repackaged and abbreviated conversation in episode 202 with the fabulous Sukinder Singh Cassidy. Sukinder, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you. The topic that I want to talk about today is this idea of risk. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, Let's talk a bit about your career and how you got your start. You have been an executive in Silicon Valley for a number of years, but that's not where you started. Mm -hmm. Take us back to where you first launched and kind of walk us forward. Sure. Well, um, like many people, I probably have a story that from the outside looks well planned and from the inside is a whole other ballgame. I graduated from uh, university undergrad in Canada. I'm Canadian by background, and I actually struggled to get my first job. Uh, I We don't need to go into the long story, but suffice to t- say, it probably took me a year uh, to get my kind of first professional job out of college. And I had set my ambitions very high, which was heading to Wall Street uh-huh. and uh, made my way there by hook or crook. And that was its own story. And so really started on Wall Street in kind of 1993, ended up at Merrill Lynch in New York um, and was with Merrill in New York and then in London and uh, was lucky enough uh, after being in London with Merrill to join uh, B Sky B, uh, one of the first digital satellite broadcasters in a division of News Corps. Um, in 1994 90, uh, to 1996. And so I had the start of my career in investment banking and then in media, but was dying, believe it or not, by the time I was 26 or 27 to start a company. I had no idea how, I had no idea what, but sort of was like hankering to be an entrepreneur. And so I quit my job and moved to Silicon Valley uh, in 1997. And unbeknownst to me, turns out that was a pretty good time to head here. And so my career in Silicon Valley started uh, right then, which was really as the internet was starting to sort of move from linear to nonlinear growth. And I ended up joining the startup here, and that's how I made my way. Yeah. You you tell a really interesting story uh, that I've, I've heard you share, and I believe you share it in your upcoming book, which we're going to talk about. But you had the experience of being described as too aggressive mm-hmm. in one of your early Silicon Valley jobs. And this was actually after you had done a number of years on Wall Street mm-hmm. at, at a big investment firm, actually two, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. at both Merrill Lynch and at, and at Sky. Um, talk about that experience and what you learned from that. 
Yeah, it's so interesting, right? It's really seminal in some ways. As I and you know, many of these things end up standing up, standing out in hindsight, even more than at the time you're going through them. I find it ironic that I ended up at um, two male-dominated firms and in industries, both media and financial services, uh, you know, Wall Street in particular, that are known to be sort of maybe not as friendly to women, but my aggressiveness and kind of my natural intensity was really welcomed. And I thrived actually in both places. So, and then I've come to Silicon Valley and by and large, I say I've thrived. I wouldn't have stayed here for 25 plus years if I hadn't found my tribe. But in my very first job, uh, which was for um, a startup, on my second day on the job, my boss told me I was scaring the secretaries. And you can imagine, is it 26 or 27 year old, I literally was like, what could I have possibly done? Like, literally, I've gotten a desk. I've walked to the bathroom a couple of times. <laughs> you know, maybe I've sat in a meeting. So, and that signaling to me was actually pretty difficult because it right. had questioning on like day two, like, what have I done? And, and I would say in the next six months of my first job experience in the Valley, like it went downhill from there. And what I mean by that is a couple of things at, you know, in my two prior jobs, I was, you know, uh, very quickly given more responsibility than my job and trusted with a lot and, you know, progressively promoted, interestingly. And in my, you know, in my first job in the Valley, although I was hired to do biz dev, I was actually given increasingly what I thought were menial tasks. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard and, you know, being given junior tasks as a junior person. But because my experience was the opposite, which was people were trusting me with more every day on the job, right. in a job where I'm supposed to be doing BD, but I was being given things like doing marketing collateral, I didn't understand it. Um, I saw a male colleague who was, you know, significantly senior to me, probably 10 or more years of work experience than me, be very volatile on the job and very aggressive and lose his temper. And yet my boss seemed to tolerate that behavior and coddle that person. And yet I was being told or signaled to that I was somehow being aggressive by just showing up at work. And I, and I didn't really understand what was going on. And I do recall you know, it's like, it's like I said, I have this vivid memory of like watching that, feeling increasingly unsure about myself. Um, I mean, I cried a lot at work. <laughs> and I think one day we, you know, my boss and I were walking out at the same time out of work to the parking lot. And somehow we got into this discussion about my unhappiness. And he said to me, well, Sukinder, you're like the rookie on the football team, you know, that needs to be coached. And I'm like, uh, I said, quite respectfully, uh, I've never been told I need to be coached. Nobody has ever told me that I need to be stewarded somehow. And this is not the feedback I've ever gotten before. Um, and the situation continued. And I think somewhere around month six, somebody came in ironically to do uh, sexual discrimination and harassment tra training. This is like 1997. And I remember literally asking for a private session with that person and walking into the woman who was doing the training and saying, you know, this is my experience. Like, am I being discriminated against? And she really wouldn't give me a straight answer. And, and to be honest, I, I'm not here to accuse that person of, of being malicious or anything towards me. But what was very clear is like how I expected to be treated on the job and how my boss, you know, thought of me were at odds. And right. so I basically started looking for another job. I really thought I didn't belong in the Valley. I was questioning whether I was even suited to biz dev. And I thought about leaving. And luckily for me, I took a recruiter call for a company called Jungly. I had very little interest in the business. But the first time I met the founders, 
they seemed to welcome who I was. And I loved how smart they were and how straightforward. And I switched jobs. And uh, on day two of the job, uh, they asked me to pick up a whole set of responsibility that Jungly needed done in a new business vertical they were entering, which was e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And I had the exact opposite experience and was back to sort of being trusted and told to run, not walk. And yeah. Given like no structure, but being told to figure it out, and that totally suited me, and I thrived. Yeah, there's so many things that strike me about your your story because you you can jump to the point of saying, okay, was it was I being discriminated against, or was it sort of code for feedback that the boss was not capable or comfortable giving? And I, I don't know about you, but I've had this experience so many times where I would have a female colleague or a junior staffer and and have maybe a male counterpart say, well, we can't promote her because she can't take feedback. Yeah. And I'd be like, well, what does that mean exactly? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so it's an interesting, it's an interesting anecdote about sort of how to how to think about this idea of getting feedback and mm-hmm. what to do when you get it. In that case, you sounds like you didn't really get feedback at all. No, I didn't. And and to be honest, like, look, I, I'm a grown up. I have to give feedback all the time, by the way, as an executive and a CEO, do you know how much feedback I've had to receive? So it's not like I think I am perfect to me, the signaling on day two of the job where there are very few data points, right? Something about me is too aggressive. I was like, I, I would have preferred something specific, but to be honest, that was a pretty quick data point. Could, there couldn't have been that much data. And right. then to your, right, to your point, if there was data coming in, I think sitting down and saying like, hey, here are the data points. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would have taken some away the mis- mystery about all of this, right? Um, so yeah, there's a lesson to be learned. This is why, you know, I, I don't use words like, you know, discrimination lightly. I do believe I was given a message about my perceived aggressiveness at a point where there couldn't have been that many data points about my work. It was date. And unfortunately, or fortunately, that set the tone for the relationship I had with my boss and I, me wary, paranoid, somewhat insecure, somewhat defensive, you know, him probably feeling like I, you know, I don't know, also wasn't fitting in. Yeah. He just never got to that point of candid, constructive feedback. Right. Given and received in a safe environment. We did it. Was it hard for you to get over the experience? I mean, sometimes when you have a setback like that and there's not, you don't always have clear answers or why is it I'm not meshing with this person or, you know, sometimes it can really do a number on your confidence. Did you find that that was the case or were you able to just say, you know what, this is just the wrong fit for me and move on? Well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, when we're younger and and even now, I think there is... Um, you know, when you don't have that many data points, any data point risks shaking your confidence. I mean, right. my confidence was shaken right out of college when I couldn't get the job I wanted. And again, up until that point, you know, I thrived in school. Lots of people were telling me I was, you know, like many, you know, I was like a, a student, all of those good things. So I think it's always easier when you have a number of data points that are positive to take a negative take it in stride and move on. And luckily for me, I had three years of work experience. Three years doesn't sound like that many, but in three in the context of six months of a bad experience, but three plus years of a good one. And then, you know, my very next job experience being so positive, I relatively speaking, took it in stride. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that doesn't mean you ignore difficult feedback, not at all. But if you said like, what's your ability to bounce back or recover from feedback? 
I think it's about all the data points you have and putting it in context. And obviously, when we have, you know, not enough data points, it's very easy to over-index or over-rotate on one or two. As you have more, you definitely just have, as I said, you have, you know, more data in which to consider any single piece of feedback. Yeah. So clearly you have put this experience into context, you've utilized it, you've gone on to amazing jobs. Because I want to talk about risk-taking in particular, I'm curious about, and all of the risks that you've taken over the course of your career, I'd love for you to talk a bit about how you grew up. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Did they instill this idea in you? Did that have anything to do with sort of the path that you think you have taken? Uh, Yes, indeed, it did. But of course, this comes to my point of view on risk, which maybe isn't normal. My parents were, so let's just back up. My parents were both doctors. They ran a medical practice together, first in Africa and then in Canada, where they immigrated to when I was two. And let's just agree, the medical profession is not a high-risk profession in terms of you go to school, you have a very known path, that known path gets you a job, you know, there's stability in your job. So my parents valued stability a lot, right? So you say, well, what is risk taking about that? But then you would go one step deeper and say, my father loved running a small business as much as he loved being a doctor. So he really, you know, he really loved being an entrepreneur. And, you know, like, that's not high stakes poker entrepreneurship, right? That's like, I'm going to open a small business and the high stakes entrepreneurship in that might be like, I'm going to buy a building, which he did, because I dream of one day having a walk-in clinic. You know, that's that was high risk. You know, he tried branding his clinic 10 years before there was ever the notion of a walk-in clinic. So I just saw every day small and big acts of possibility. And that's what I say to people like risk taking doesn't always have to be big, right? It's about an attitude towards the things you try in order to get feedback and response and then make the next move. And so from that context, I consider my father a risk taker. And then of course, I always say to people, my parents took one big risk. They, you know, they left their entire livelihoods and in fact, financial stability behind in Africa and, you know, and moved to Canada in their late forties and started over, you know, residency and all. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've mentioned possibility, which is such an amazing word. And it is part of the title of your new book. We will include a link in the show notes for this episode so that folks can go ahead and order that. It's terrific. You talk about in that book, um, a number of things, but one in particular is this idea of the myth of a single choice. What do you mean by that? One of the reasons I wrote the book is because I believe that risk needs to be reframed because most of the risks we take are for possibility, right? Like the book is called Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. Um, But I think just to back up, I believe that there are a lot of myths around risk taking that get perpetuated. And this myth of the single choice is this idea that all of us have. I had it growing up too, that like one single choice will make or break you. You know, people struggle, as you and I both know, to make the perfect decision. I mean, how many, do I do this or do I do that? And it's all on this thesis that you choose once. And if you choose one once rightly, you're on your way to glory. And if you choose once wrongly, like abject failure is sitting dead in front of you, right? And so people are like, in some ways, paralyzed to take action when they believe in this myth of the single choice. Like, which one? It's a make or break decision. And we've been trained to think about make or break single decisions. And what I find ironic is that in my own career, I have not experienced that success comes from a single choice. Success comes from 
um, a series of choices and an iterative view towards, you know, each next possibility to unlock, let's say, a big reward. And that big reward may or may not be what you originally imagined. But I am quite sure that it is not a single choice that gets us there. And this myth of this, like the single choice, what I call the hero's journey, which is so celebrated, right? Um, maybe in hindsight, you can point to the one choice among 50 that was more seminal, but mostly reward comes from a series of choices and you have to be prepared to keep choosing. And that is completely contrary to this idea of the single choice. Let's talk a bit about uh, some action steps that folks can take to increase their risk-taking potential. Little things that we can do. You, you talked a moment ago about the importance of, of small things, and that's true in so many aspects mm -hmm. of life. But talk about what a person can do if she's having trouble, maybe getting comfortable taking those risks. Sure. So, so look, I think that, um, first of all, I think you have to expand the opportunities to take risks. So I say to people, like, there are four reasons to take risks. You're probably only thinking about one of four, maybe two. Um, number one, uh, you can take risk to discover, like literally just to discover what opportunities may exist. Number two, you can take risk to learn. You literally, let's say you move from, you know, one job to something that is seems like a lateral move. Likely you're doing it because you want to learn a new skill set, right? You can take risk to, uh, to achieve an outsized ambition. That is the kind of risk that's celebrated in the world. Or by the time we hear the story, right, about the hero, it's that, it's that one that the people are talking about. Like, look, you know, Elon Musk wanted to send people to space. Like that's what we hear about. Right. right. Um, and then the fourth risk that people take is often to avoid harm. Like, you know, you're in a precarious situation. And sometimes, I mean, look at COVID. Many people had to make very, you know, on balance, take a risky decision to avoid, you know, the harm, potential harm of COVID or the pandemic. Right. In their businesses, in their lives. So they actually acted quickly and agilely. But you have to expand your thoughts and say, if you want if you want to take more risk, first of all, find opportunities to take risk. And so bucket all of those things and think of like, what is like if I want to take a risk today to learn, to discover, to make a small step towards a big ambition, or even to avoid a harm, what, what could I do? So I think mm -hmm. first and foremost, you have to find reasons to take risk. Uh, number two, I always say to people like early and often. And you say, well, why would you take risk early enough? And I'm like, every little time you take risk, it's like a practice, right? You can say like, hey, if I take a little risk about something I don't really particularly care about, I am training myself for the day I have to make a decision that like where the odds are or the stakes are much higher. And so it's so much easier to take risk when we're in safe environments, yet people don't do it. It's so much easier to take risk when there's, so, when there's little downside, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, it is a practice. It is a muscle. Um, and, and I think that, um, I, I keep saying to people, look at the checklist, figure out ways to take risk in your daily life. Even if a risk is something like, as we talked about, um, something's bothering you speaking up, you're in a meeting, you see an opportunity, you know, say something, um, I'm making it up. You think you might want to change your job. Like even, you know, even getting on the web and doing a Google search today about a, a, uh, about an occupation you're curious about. Isn't that the tiniest micro risk you could take without committing yourself to any action? Like, and the reality is the more risks you take, the more you see the feedback loop of like what happens after. Oh, you know, you discovered something. You, you get these micro rewards or micro learnings. And um, the biggest advice I give people is like, what is stopping you from taking a little risk today? Because if you want to become an adept risk taker, like anything, it's a muscle. It is a muscle. And so like it gets better with practice. I love that. 
Talk about the connection between all of that and risk-taking related to confidence. Is it kind of the same thing? Confidence is so embedded and sort of intertwined in that, or is confidence something different? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's a really uh, great question. Well, first of all, I would say, imagine if I said to you, the reward for risk is not reward. And what I mean by that, it's not the reason you originally took the risk. Because most people think like, I'm taking a risk for this very objective reward, you know, increased financial wealth. I want to be, uh, you know, I don't know, I want to be a CEO, what have you. Now, imagine that the reward for risk taking that is 100% true is agility, right? So what happens when you become agile? Whether you say, succeed or you fail, agility breeds confidence because you sort of know that given any situation, if you can see the results and make the next choice, I bet you become more confident. And so I think the relationship between, I actually think that confidence is almost the, um, the like, I don't know what's the best, it's, it's almost the most predictable right, right. <laughs> reward for risk-taking, right? So mm-hmm. how ironic is that? Like, how many people want to be confident? If I said to you, like, hey, if you want the, like, fail-safe reward for risk-taking, what if I told you it's not the reward you imagined? It's agility and confidence. Because the minute you sort of make multiple moves, and whether they work out or don't, you make the choice after, your agility grows, and your confidence that you can pretty much deal with any situation and recover also increases. And imagine the freedom that that gives you. Like, it's it's just incredibly freeing, right, to know that um, in any given choice, there are still choices to be made afterward, depending on the results, including failure. And if you feel like once you've been through that cycle a number of times, your confidence will increase because your agility, your agility increases first, and the byproduct is confidence. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways in which you talk about weighing whether to take a risk is this sort of the difference between what you call FOF and FOMO, (laughs) which is fear of failure versus fear of missing out, which I thought was an interesting way to think about this dynamic. And this is how you have processed Mm -hmm. this idea of how to take a risk. Talk a little bit about that and how it how it has related to your own experiences. Sure. Well, it's so funny. It's um, so I, I always say to people like we think that when we're taking a risk, we have one fear. We have two fears, and they're what and they're what I call part of a universal risk taking equation. Uh, fear uh, FOMO is what we all know. Fear of missing out. Whenever we're thinking about a new opportunity, it's because we have FOMO, right? We're like, oh, I, I, if I don't do this, if I don't act, I'm going to miss out on something really positive potentially. Right. So that's the that, but it's still a fear, right? And then the other fear that everybody knows I have it too is fear of failure. And so I say to people in the kind of universal risk-taking equation, when your FOMO outweighs your fear of failure, you act. And when your fear of failure is greater than your FOMO, you don't act. And so uh, a person's natural, like the natural universal wisdom out there is grow your FOMO, grow your FOMO. Like just keep visualizing the most positive things that can happen, right? But think about what happens when you only visualize the positive and it fails to transpire on your first choice. You almost are in that like myth of a single choice. Oh my God, I took this big risk and it didn't work out. So I think when you just visualize the positive, do you know what I mean? Visualize, visualize, visualize. And your very first move doesn't turn out the way you want. I'm not really sure that helps you keep acting. And so people always assume that I'm like really good at imagining the positive. And don't get me wrong, like I can get myself excited about pretty much anything. But for any control-oriented person, which I am as well, you know, I far I spend as much time stressing, if not more, about what's going to go wrong. And my fear of failure is pretty high. So what I've really learned to do is focus much more on the downside 
of what can go wrong. Because if I'm pleasantly surprised to the upside, there'll be many, many more choices to be made. What I mostly try and do, believe it or not, is confront my fears in any choice and think through what would I do if the thing I want is, you know, first doesn't work. If the first move doesn't work, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. You know, if um, in a biz dev contract, when I mean, I grew up doing sales in biz dev, I'm always, you know, as you know, most contracts are built on only solving for the negative state. Like that's every contract doesn't say if this happens, then this happens. I mean, deals only get done because somebody is mapping out every potential worst outcome of contract and putting in writing what happens next. And so I, I think about two fears in my own risk taking equation. And I personally, um, it's like it's very easy to spend all your time thinking about FOMO. But in my mind, if you can really think through what happens in the failure state and imagine your next choices, you'll reduce your fear of failure which in some ways I, you know, I find far more productive. Yeah. You actually talk about it in the context of almost planning for it. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot on this podcast about whether you have a plan for your career or whether you just set goals or benchmarks. But I love the idea of planning for things not working out the way that you plan for them to and what you're going to do when that happens. Yeah. Let's put it this way. My own energy is my FOMO plan is what I call a whiteboard plan. It's like a rough guide on the upside. I first for sure have a vision for what I want to achieve. And I would never suggest you don't have a vision for the positive. I mean, that's our, all of our North Star, right? Like, and it's what keeps you motivated. But my, I will say to the upside, I plan roughly. To the downside, I plan in detail, which is maybe the opposite of most people. Like when as a CEO, as I receive plans from others, oh my gosh, the amount of detail to the positive is incredible. It's like as if people can predict to the nth degree in their plan, what's going to happen in this next quarter. And then their plan to the downside or their plan for like, you know, other things they're going to experiment with is just not there. It's like as if everything they're going to do is going to work out exactly as they want. So they plan out all the steps to the upside. And I'm like, and I see very few plans which are like, hey, you know, I'm going to take this first move. And then depending on the outcome, you know, here are the next things that could happen. It's mostly like yeah. all, every single one of my choices is going to go right. So just like watch as, as I map the, the 15 positive choices. And I'm like, that's a very detailed plan to the upside. I'm like, uh, I'm not sure my plan's going to go the way I think it is on move one. So I'm not going to spend that much energy on all the great things that can happen. I'm just going to roughly plan for the upside. And really, uh, I want to know what I'm going to do when the when the first move doesn't work out the way I think it's going to. How, how much did your early career experience in investment banking and in business development, as you've talked about a couple yeah. of times, how much of that really informed the way that you think about planning for the downside? Because what, what, what I think is so important here is it's not you're not using the planning for the downside as an excuse not to take the risk. Yeah. You're you're actually using it as a plan for here's what I will do when it goes wrong. Yeah, I'm actually using it to gain confidence to take the risk, yeah. which is a really weird thing, right? But it's great though. I love it. Um yeah, I don't know if investment banking trained me for it, to be honest. I mean that probably just trained me in like hard work and diligence, because there's a very known path that you have to do as an analyst to be successful, right? Um, I think that I, I think that you are right, though, you know, my first jobs were in sales, my first job was in business development, this idea of forecasting for multiple cases, I think is very much in the nature of sales and business development. In the case of sales, it's like, you're planning that most times the sales call doesn't work. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like this idea that you call one person and one person says yes, like that is the opposite of great sales, right? You have to plan for 99 people to say no. And so you have to build a pipeline for 100. So that's true. 
like I think sales is very good training in planning for the negative state. That's true. And then biz dev, if you just look at it, the contract, the, all the contract work, all of it is about being diligent to the downside, you know, so that you know. And so I'm pretty sure that sales and business development taught me to um, just manage the probabilities of the downside. And even if they're low, accounting for them and being, you know, and just taking that into account in your action plan. Yeah, to your point, though, it doesn't mean you don't act. You, you, you're you sort of visualizing failure in order to act, <laughs> which right. may be counterintuitive to people. Yeah, I love that. Sue Kinder, thank you so much. No worries. Thanks for having me. Really fun. No, it was a pleasure. Hey, friend, I hope you enjoyed this repackaged episode with Sukender Singh Cassidy. It's episode 202. You'll find the complete uncut episode at episode 159. And you can find that easily on my website at she said she said podcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I would love to know what you thought of Sukinder's perspective on risk-taking and also how she thinks about this idea of fear of failure in the context of taking risks. And also how you, friend, think about risk-taking in your own life and career. I'd really love to hear. I'll talk to you again real soon. Until then, you take care. She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.